Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. Can Jewish communities in the diaspora rely on their governments for their security and the battle against anti-Semitism? Our guest today has made an assessment and we asked him to share it with us. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and the daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I emigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Philip Zimbler Miller, the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, thenedgethewedge.com. I grew up in Elgin, Illinois, a town in the Midwest that was not a Holocaust community, and yet 25 years after the end of World War II and the Holocaust, my U.S. Army officer husband and I were stationed in Munich, Germany, and this changed our lives as Jews forever. Benjamin Weinthal is a Jerusalem-based journalist who covers the Middle East and Europe and is, writing fellow, is a writing fellow at the Middle East Forum. He contributed articles to the Wall Street Journal, the Jerusalem Post, Foreign Policy, Haaretz, Forbes, and the New York Post. On June 29 of this year, he published an opinion piece in the Israeli-English language news outlet Ynet, in which he analyzed the work against anti-Semitism of European governments. Benjamin, it's awesome to have you on our show. Welcome. Thanks for having me on the show, uh, Evelyn and Phyllis, and um, I look forward to uh, a lively discussion. To start with, could you first tell us personally how you relate to anti-Semitism? Well, it's mainly uh, from the departure point of um, journalism because I've um, reported on and analyzed um, anti-Semitism as a global movement um, over the last 20 years. Um, um, and I, I did live in uh, Germany for 14 years. So I um, speak German and I was able to immerse myself in um, the discussions about uh, contemporary anti-Semitism, mainly in the uh, German speaking countries. Um, my father, uh, and his family fled the uh, Hitler movement in 1940. And uh, um, so I have uh, experience as, as a son of, uh, of um, a family that uh, fled uh, the Holocaust. I see. Um, so let's dive into our main theme of today. Um, as global anti-Semitism increased in the past two decades, Jewish communities around the world got worried about their freedom and security. In response to that, governments in Europe, America, and elsewhere have installed offices, commissioners, and special envoys to stop anti-Semitism. Can you briefly describe to us what these government offices mainly have done against anti-Semitism so, so far? and what they have accomplished. And is this very different between countries, for instance, between Europe and America? 
Well, I'm um, a sharp critic of uh, the uh, appointment of anti-Semitism commissioners who are tasked with fighting anti-Semitism in Europe and the layers of bureaucracy that have been um, that have sort of uh, mushroomed around uh, this effort to rope in uh, anti-Semitism. I, I largely see the, you know, efforts of um, there's, I think, over well over 30, maybe over 40 commissioners tasked with anti fighting anti-Semitism in Germany. And there's a European commissioner and there are commissioners in some other countries um, as um, a form of, of managing anti-Semitism. They're not really in the business of cracking down on uh, lethal anti-Semitism, as I wrote in my YNET piece. Um, and thank you for reading the piece and turning to me for commentary and analysis on the piece. Um, and, and some examples I, I gave in that piece were the uh, European commissioner and the German commissioner um, both have refused um, in response to press queries from me over the years. And when I personally uh, asked Katharina von Schnorbein here in Germany, in, um, sorry, in Israel, I live in Jerusalem, uh, at an event um, a few weeks ago in Jerusalem, if she plans to recommend to the EU to outlaw the Iranian Islamic Republic Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, excuse me, the acronym is IRGC. It's a U.S. designated terrorist organization. And, uh, you know, she, she dodged the question and she and and the German commissioner Felix Klein has also dodged the question. They won't uh, comment on it. It, it. That's the bottom line that. So, again, if you're not in the business of um making great efforts to outlaw lethal anti-Semitic terrorist organizations on European soil, then I, I see these roles as largely meaningless. They hold conferences, and I get that. They hold all sorts of schmooze events and put out policy papers that are largely not read. And the papers that are read by people like me um, don't contain uh, any um, language about targeting Palestinian terrorism or Palestinian anti-Semitism or Iranian regime-sponsored anti-Semitism. So those gaps, which I consider quite significant, um, have, in my view, turned these, uh, have showed these positions to be sort of um, largely paper tigers, and they're mainly cosmetic. That's why I think there needs to be a radical new, new approach to um, combating anti-Semitism. I have... Um... So once in a while, I look up um, at the website of um, the European Commissioner Against Antisemitism. Um, I look up what 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 is Europe doing right now uh, in terms of policy, and then I see a lot of uh, it's it's a lot of money talk, like oh. the European Union um, has money for certain kind of projects and. Organizations can apply for it um, if they are doing work in them towards the goal of the of that particular amount of money that the European Union wants to spend. But 
and I see research from the European Union. Am I missing something? Uh, the, is there something else they're doing against anti-Semitism that I'm missing? Well, the question for me is, does what, what they're doing constitute um, uh, real action? As I said, these are uh, layers of bureaucracy that are in the business of managing anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. um, and they also, um, and, I've, and I think this is a key criticism of their work that comes from Igal Carmon, who's the president of the Middle East uh, Media Research Institute, a very prestigious institute devoted to translating and uh, media articles and other texts from the um, Middle East, but other countries now, Russia, China, they have different projects. And he, he's written essays that are on the, the website of memory about this very topic that we're discussing that I think, in my view, are, are mandatory reading. Intelligence demands that one read Egal's essays because he lays out very practical strategies. And his departure point is, and this is someone who speaks fluent Arabic. Um, he was, um, who understands anti-Semitism in the um, Muslim world, in the Arab world. Um, where where it's ubiquitous as we all as we all know, and he talks about um, you can't fight anti-Semitism without fighting anti-Semites. So what he views is the EU and um, and 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 other countries in the West um, are fighting anti-Semitism as an ideology, but not fighting anti-Semites individuals unless you personalize it. Um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way because. Um, anti-Semitism is fueled by anti-Semites. Anti those are human beings. You have to identify those targets and you have to combat them um, on, a, on a sort of one-to-one -one basis. Or if it's an institutional body that's stoking anti-Semitism, you have to single out the actors in that institution. And I can name some, for example, German foundations that are uh, you know, funding anti-Israeli NGOs. Who are the people behind these institutions? And it's just not a matter of naming and shaming um, because that can help animate or bring about a change in, in behavior. But it also begins to show people that anti-Semitism is not some nebulous concept out there that we're trying to grasp onto. It's, it's a flesh and blood creature and it needs to be debunked and combated. And that's why I think this, this notion of fighting anti-Semitism without anti-Semites is so dangerous. And that's largely the, the EU's uh, overall strategy. So um, is, is this approach different in the United States or does it also count for the, the American bureaucracy against anti-Semitism? Well, the, the, the United States, and that's an excellent question, Evelyn, the, the differences, because there, there could, you know, it's there, there hasn't really been any type of comparative analysis written about the different approaches between the United States and the European Union. Um, but the United States, of course, it depends on uh, which administration is in power. During the Trump era, um, and as you both know, uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, declared Iran to be the world's worst state sponsor of anti-Semitism. Now, that was a breakthrough because the U.S. State Department under both Democratic, Democrat and Republican administrations has classified the Islamic Republic as the world's top state sponsor of terrorism. But Pompeo went in another direction 
in addition to saying Iran's the top state sponsor of terrorism, he designated Iran as the top state sponsor of anti-Semitism. Now, that sent shockwaves across the world because it set an important precedent that the Europeans don't want to embrace because the Europeans are largely engaged in appeasement policies toward Iran, and they don't want to pick fights with the Islamic Republic of Iran. The Europeans love to pick fights with America and Israel. Those are the two main countries they pick fights with. But when it comes to uh, Iran, especially on the topic of anti-Semitism, um, they, they largely go deadly silent. And we've seen that, as I said, with anti-Semitism commissioners. Um, and I'll, I'll name an example, um, because I, I do think it's important. Uh, Felix Klein, who's, who's supposed to be a very nice guy, I've never met him. He's sent me statements at times. Other times he ignores my press queries. That's fine. Um, that's his right. Um, but during he's the, the Trump- commissioner, He's the commissioner against anti-Semitism yes, to combat anti-Semitism in Germany. Yeah. But the German governments overall, because the states have individual and federal governments, yeah, German state, right, okay. right. He he's like the the Deborah um, Lipstadt, Deborah Lipstadt, but in Germany, and he and yeah. he's responsible. He doesn't have a background in in anti-Semitism, but most of these commissioners don't. Um, so you're dealing with folks who are um, lack a lot of knowledge about what modern anti-Semitism is. But he took he took the position, and again, I you know this was I strongly suspect uh, the the German government pushed him to do this. He criticized anti-Semitism in the U.S. during the Trump era. Now, when I went back to him and I asked, you know, you've criticized anti-Semitism in the Trump period during the Trump administration. Why don't you criticize Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, who just called for the destruction of Israel? That's a form of genocidal anti-Semitism. That strikes me as more destructive than any form of anti-Semitism I've heard about in the U.S. I mean, because it's state-sponsored, as opposed to individuals who are killing Jews in the U.S., like in the Pittsburgh synagogue. We have a, a state whose foreign policy is largely contingent on uh, creating a, a second Holocaust targeting the Jewish, Jewish state. That's unprecedented since... Uh, the Hitler movement of 1945, but he won't he won't comment on it. So this is German this is German foreign policy. Um, they allow why, him to criticize. Why do you think it's German foreign policy? Why do they want appeasement with Iran? What do they get out of it? Well, there's different there's different theories. Um, I mean, one is Germany's always had an infatuation with Iran because they were the ones who. Um, basically brought Iran in from the cold after the revolution in 1979 and the early 80s. And the Wall Street Journal over 10 years ago was running editorials, at least three editorials, saying Iran, lo Germany loves Iran, part one. Germany loves Iran, part two. And one reason what that was cited was trade relations. Germany right now conducts over a billion dollars worth of trade each year with Iran. If this controversial Iran nuclear deal went through, some estimates say Germany would uh, conduct as high as much as 15 billion in bilateral trade with the Islamic Republic. And this includes Germany selling technology that can be used as part of Iran's war machine right now. It's called do-use technology. So bus the, the business of Germany's export business, that's one reason. Another reason is Germany likes to be miscongeniality. They don't want, as I said, they don't want to pick fights in terms of their foreign policy with any countries, with two exceptions, the United States and Israel. 
There, they're not miscongeniality. They love picking fights and they love sanctioning Israel and they love uh, attacking Israel and the UN Security Council and comparing it to Hamas as their former UN ambassador, Christoph Hoiskin did a number of years ago. And the Simon Wiesenthal Center uh, termed him to be one of the worst outbreaks of anti-Semitism in 2019. Um, but another theory is that's been offered is by uh, from Henrik M. Broder. He's a very famous German-Jewish journalist in Germany. He's friends with, uh, Evelyn, you're from Holland. I've met uh, with Leon de Winter, yes, who's also yes. a friend uh, of mine, very and famous. Mine. Yeah. Uh, say hello, very famous Dutch-Jewish writer who's written extensively about anti-Semitism. Uh, Henrik and Leon are good friends, and I've been out with them to discuss these topics. And uh, Henrik, um, who, who's sort of, um, you know, he's an enormously popular writer in Germany. He writes for Die Welt newspaper, The World, a column, and he's an expert on anti-Semitism. He has argued, and I've heard him discuss this at the Jewish Community Center in Berlin, that um, there is a almost a unconscious, conscious and unconscious strands of thinking within um, many Germans, including policymakers and lawmakers, to permit the Iranians to finish the job that the Hitler movement did not complete. And this is the his explanation is this um, bolstering of Iran's regime via Germany is part of this process to to finish off uh, these over six million Jews who live in Israel because the Germans did not execute the job in the end. Now, what does he base that on? Certainly, the relations are very strong. Uh, Germany has sent diplomats for years to Tehran's embassy in Berlin to celebrate the Islamic revolution. Germany's president currently, Frank Walter Steinmeier from the Social Democrats sent a telegram to the Iranian regime's president a number of years ago, Rouhani, who's the, who's the president before uh, the current uh, mass murderer, Raisi, um, uh, thank, or celebrating him, congratulating him, that is Rouhani, on the Islamic Republic's revolution. And the list goes on and on and on in terms of this bending over backwards to uh, salute the Islamic Republic. I should note that Frank-Walter Steinmeier did not congratulate President Trump when he won the election democratically in the U.S., but of course he did congratulate uh, Rouhani on their country's uh, uh, revolution. Um, wow. That's, that's a very... Uh, dark reality uh, that you're describing here. I, I think, if I may, and I think one other explanation is, um, <clears throat> and maybe this, I, I may be jumping ahead, but I do think this is a, it, this serves as, as a certain form of explanatory power to understand um, contemporary anti-Semitism in Germany, but across Europe, especially Western Europe. I um, mean, I spoke about this at a conference at Bar-Ilan University that in June that was dealt with um, global anti-Semitism. It was a very good conference. They brought in people from all different countries in Europe and and, and, uh, um, and experts in Israel. And this notion of, um, this is a very uh, esoteric sort of complicated sociological term that was used by two German Jewish philosophers, uh, Theodor Adorno and Max Horkheimer. And it's called guilt defensiveness anti-Semitism. 
And that term, um, this is what my talk was about, was could largely. You repeat, could you repeat that uh, once more? The term? Sure. It's called guilt, guilt, defensiveness, anti-Semitism. Guilt, defensiveness, anti-Semitism. And, and the idea is, and I'll just give you the kitchen sink psychological version of it, is um, the German response to the Holocaust, Germans who responded to the Holocaust in, 19, in, in response uh, after 1945 and continuing to this day, is one in which they're filled with pathological guilt about the crimes they committed or their family members committed or their um or others committed, you know, if they weren't directly involved um, in the name of Germany at that time. And as a result, Germans who are contaminated with this form of anti-Semitism, this guilt offensiveness anti-Semitism, which I believe is widespread, attempt to purge the guilt. And how do they purge the guilt is they align themselves with the enemies of Israel and they also uh, engage in turning uh, Israel into a human punching bag. So it's politically and socially incorrect to uh, target Jews per se in Germany and, and use classical anti-Semitic uh, attacks on Jews. But if via this guilt offensiveness anti-Semitism, if you can argue that Israel's government is the functional equivalent of Nazi Germany because of the way they treat the Palestinians, then um, you, you you alleviate some of the guilt or all of the guilt in that very moment due to the crimes of the National Socialists with respect to the Holocaust. One sentence might sum this up better for you because it, get, it, is, it, it can get a bit, a bit complicated, but I do think it's the best explanatory model out there to understand why countries like Holland, uh, France, Belgium, so many of these countries, Austria, have extremely high levels of anti-Semitism when you discuss Israel, because they were complicit in the crimes of the Holocaust through their fascist, pro-fascist governments. The sentence I'm thinking about is from an Israeli psychoanalyst. I'm sure you've, you may have heard about this, from Zivi Rex, who said in the 80s, the Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. The Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. Again, the idea here is he's saying it in biting, sarcastic terms. But the idea is the Germans are so filled with guilt that um, they'll never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. It, so, again, he captures this idea of guilt offensiveness, anti-Semitism. I would argue now um, that, and this is what I've written about and argued in different forums, is that the Western Europeans now will never forgive the Israelis for the Holocaust. And that that explains the extraordinary high levels of anti-Semitism yeah. across West, mainly Western Europe. Of course, there's anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe, but the the level of Israel bashing in Western European countries is um, a national pastime. It's the functional equivalent how your Europeans embrace soccer; they embrace bashing Israel in the same fashion. But but isn't there? It's, it's interesting. I just so, want to know. So, are yep. we discussing? I mean, I'm going to touch the subject that we. I'm trying to talk about Muslims living in Western European countries. Doesn't that have a large. So they weren't there mostly at the time of World War II. So are, are these two different factions pushing anti Semitism to the fore? 
In other words, the guilt yes, that, that, of the French Dutch and Tetra who whose ancestors were around in World War II, and then the immigrants who hate Israel for a different reason. Yeah, I, I think that's a good uh, characterization, Phyllis. You have the recipe for a perfect storm. What you're seeing is um, you, you, Islamic animated anti-Semitism flourishing in many of these countries that have large um, Muslim populations, combined with this highly dangerous and uh, incredibly neglected form of anti-Semitism, guilt offensiveness anti-Semitism, that most people don't want to discuss or research. But it's, I said, I think it's, it's um, very widespread. So you have these different forms of anti-Semitism sort of merging at times or um, drifting away from each other, but attacking Jews from different angles. Um, and then you've got alliances, as I said uh, just now, between the two factions where you see German or European leftists who are infected with guilt, defensiveness, anti-Semitism, or even mainstream Europeans who are infected with this type of anti-Semitism, who align themselves with um, European Muslims, German Muslims, Austrian Muslims in their efforts to um, attack Jews and and Israel. I can I can confirm that uh, coming from Europe and having left in two thousand six only. So um, Benjamin, uh, so there are economic factors why Iran is not taken on for its anti-Semitism. The, uh, there are psychological factors. Um, wh what is Iran? What is the? Is there any? anti-Semitism coming from Iran within the European borders or within the American borders, U.S. borders? Right. Well, first I'll deal with Europe because the answer to the question is yes. We've had, or <clears throat> excuse me, in Germany in the fall, um, there were attacks by the IRGC, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, against synagogues. There was a shooting in one synagogue, an attempt to burn other synagogues that and these attacks were attributed to Iran's IRGC. Um, now that it's you can read about this in the media and German security uh, sources also confirm this. And I'm just going through a court case right now where it's also outlined in terms of uh, trying to uh, um, bring to justice an Iranian who fled to Iran, who's behind these attacks and coordinating them. Um, I've asked Felix Klein and, again, Katharina von Schnorbein and the German government if they're going to ban the IRGC since it launched these attacks and there's evidence. And this is not the first time. Pakistani, who received a contract, uh, kill, uh, uh, um, was paid, excuse me, from the IRGC to surveil and assassinate pro-Israel supporters and Jews in Europe a number of years ago was convicted in Germany um, and he was paid by the IRGC. So you have a legal case confirming this. Uh, the EU um, foreign policy chief has said we can't ban the IRGC because we don't have a legal case. It's all nonsense. If you talk to terrorism experts, they'll point you to this legal case and others. Uh, Matthew Levitt from the Washington Institute has also written about this, who's a Hezbollah expert and i've talked to the i've gotten comments from a member of the german parliament from the christian democratic union uh, who's also said 
this is nonsense, this is a bogus argument. And the reason is the European Union and the German government, the German government, by the way, can unilaterally designate the IRGC just as Holland can too, right? The Netherlands was the first European country, to my knowledge, to designate all of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. Right now, um, the, the European Union has not designated the Iranian-backed Hezbollah terrorist organization, the full organization, as a terrorist entity, only its so-called political wing. I've asked, again, the anti-Semitism envoys at the European level and the German level. They won't comment on this either. Um, um, so, it, it, you know, it, look, if I was in that position and I was tasked with fighting anti-Semitism and I wasn't able to publicly say, <clears throat> you know, it seems to me that these Iranian-backed groups are killing Jews, as they did in Burgas, Bulgaria, when Hezbollah in 2012 blew up an Israeli tourist bus and killed five Israelis, injured 32 other Israelis, and killed the, the, the Bulgarian Muslim bus driver. Um, and there's other examples of the IRGC, as I've said, and Hezbollah's chief proxy uh, attempting to kill uh, Jews on European soil. If I was in the position of one of these envoys, I would certainly recommend it. And if I wasn't able to recommend it being a ban or terror prescription, mm -hmm. then I would resign. And I would publicly say, I'm resigning my position because the this, the European Union is a toothless tiger when it comes to fighting anti-Semitism. So that, that's my criticism. But I, I should note, the so that's the European piece. You can see why it's the Europeans aren't even limping on both legs in terms of their efforts to outlaw um, all these anti-Semitic terrorist organizations, they're, they're not even crawling. It's just pure stagnation and inertia. And they're, they're not doing, excuse my language, a damn thing. On the American side, um, they're much better, obviously, because the U.S. has outlawed all of Hezbollah since 1997. The, the Americans now, I think, in Congress are formulating another letter or resolution to urge the Europeans uh, to outlaw all of Hezbollah. I saw something about this online. The Americans also uh, outlawed the IRGC on, during the Trump period as a terrorist organization. Um, and um, the U.S. Um, has problems in other areas. For example, the um, I'll just name one where Egal Carmon has talked about this section 230 of, of the law that allows all these big tech companies to promote, uh, allows violent anti-Semitic ideologies and, and terrorism to flourish on their websites, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Facebook, et cetera. And they hide behind the shield of this law, 230, that, in, that grants them immunity from um, legal lawsuit, from lawsuits. So Egal Carmon has proposed ways to revamp this so that a lot of this ideology and um, that, that serves to radicalize terrorists, anti-Semitic terrorists, um, can be uh, regulated. And the, the, the brand new uh, and first ever national strategy of the United States um, against anti-Semitism that, that was just launched by the White House, it talks about this um, um, regulate this this um, two thirty. Um, rule that uh, protects or immunizes um, uh, tech platforms, uh, so, uh, social media platforms against legal uh, being held responsible for 
uh, a lot of anti-Semitic speech on their platforms. Um, this U.S. strategy wants to try to to change that. So that that could be a good development, I, I guess you think, correct? Yes, exactly. Well, it's black web. Yeah, I don't think they've. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they've gone far enough, as I understand it, in terms of the trying to modify Section Two Thirty of the um, because it's a Communications uh, Decency Act. Um, because Egal Carmo makes the point: while well, you regulate television, print journalism, radio, uh, why can't you regulate uh, these big tech companies? And um, it's it's. I don't think the the, the new anti-Semitism report contains the type of modifications that would um, really, really rope in and diminish what we're seeing on the on these platforms. Um, and then, of course, the report, as I understand, it, also included CARE, Council on American-Islamic Relations, as a partner in fighting anti-Semitism, although this organization, CARE, is packed full of raging anti-Semites. Now, that sort of, now, I know the anti-Semitism commissioner in the U.S., said, well, we want to give people a second chance. But that strikes me as also nonsense because I, I somehow I ended up getting care public um, press releases. Um, I didn't subscribe to them, but they keep sending them to me. And they, um, you know, they're constantly bashing Israel. And in my view, when I look at these press releases from CARE uh, about criticizing Israel's self-defense measures against terrorist entities like Hamas, um, it it's it's a way of contributing to an anti-Semitic climate in the U.S. Um, so CARE is not um, an organization that, uh, and I, I get wanting to give someone a second chance, but they haven't earned it. Um, in fact, they're, they're I yeah, go wanna, ahead. I just want to say, because we're coming to the end, and we have uh, actually discussed this part of the, the uh, strategy with so, a podcast that hasn't gone live yet. Uh, Evelyn and I, we're told that it has much more to do with getting funds for uh, keeping mosques secure and to be fair because funds to keep synagogues secure. So that that's a reason we were told that care was included in this. Not that we don't disagree with what you're saying. You're absolutely right. But there, there was a very specific reason that care was included. And it was not, as we were told, a second chance but because of these funds by the federal government to secure places of religion in the United States that could be attached. I presume churches are also included. Well, well, Phyllis, um, um, I've seen uh, um, uh, Barbara Lipstadt and... Um, Deborah? And De Deborah Lipstadt and uh, the head of ADL, um, Jonathan Greenberg. the CEO of ADL, uh, get questions about carers uh, participation and they said that they would get a second chance okay they said it no no i'm sure um, they did i'm just saying that we were told that behind the scenes the reason has to do with yeah funding also also yes yeah. so um is iran also active in spreading anti-semitism or perpetrating anti-semitism within the United States? Yes, there was uh, a widely reported um, um, instance of uh, anti-Semitism by, I think, an Iranian regime 
um, affiliated or, or um, centrum in, in, in center in Houston um, that was reported on where young children, I think, were uh, articulating their loyalty to the regime, this type of stuff. And then, of course, you've got uh, Iranian agents um, who are, I mean, this is a bit off the mark, but who are targeting uh, Iranian dissidents uh, like Asim Malanidijad, who you know spoke at an Amer AJC conference, American Jewish Committee conference, who are targeting Iranians who are aligned with uh, with American Jews in their efforts to fight anti-Semitism. So you've got all that type of stuff where the Iranian regime's surveillance apparatus and its apparatus to eliminate via assassinations dissidents is. Um, operating in the U.S., and they've also, you know, sought to attack uh, great friends of Israel and the Jewish people, like John Bolton, Senator, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, all sorts of figures where they've uh, from the U.S. administ U.S. administrations who have gone to great lengths to fight Iranian anti-Semitism. So that should also be noted that uh, these folks are are like Pompeo and John Bolton are endangered by the regime because of their stances uh, against the regime. Um, and there's also been Hezbollah uh, cells that have been um, uh, identified and, and there have been convictions, for example, in, where I grew up in the Bronx, there was a Hezbollah operative a number of years ago who was identified and convicted in, in, in terms of a, a, a plot. Um, again, these are organizations, as we know, that are, um, whose um, reason for being Hezbollah um, is to uh, murder Jews. So it's, it, it is a serious problem. It's not as bad as Europe, as I said, because, um, <clears throat> because many, it, it's, it, but it certainly uh, I've been uh, somewhat stunned at the, the outbreak of uh, Hezbollah activity, growing activity in different parts of the U S and certainly uh, the Iranian dissidents, as I mentioned, are sort of on the front line right now in terms of Iran's uh, uh, assassination plots. So, Benjamin, do you think Jewish communities outside Israel can rely on their government's battles against anti-Semitism? Well, they have to rely on some in some way because governments and intelligence agencies are responsible for protecting their citizens. And and this is another part of the Egal Carmon's essays that are so important on, on how to fight anti-Semitism in a very practical way, because he talks about, about providing these uh, agencies, um, law enforcement, intelligence agencies, police officials with actionable information so they can stop anti-Semitic outbreaks, whether it's detected online or through informers. Um, and that's, that's really critically important. And I think that's where the Europeans are failing miserably because their envoys are, these commissioners and envoys are largely doing, as I said, sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, empty sound work bite. that involves sort of uh, soundbite works. And it's all sort of very um, loosey-goosey and touchy-feely. And it doesn't get into the, the hard work of coordinating with law enforcement agencies. Now, that being said, I do think it's important, especially in Europe, for Jewish communities to not outsource all of their protection to their governments. And 
to engage in self-organization. So Michael Ledeen, a very prominent U.S. scholar with whom I worked with at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies when we were both uh, fellows there, has written about how the Italian Jewish community has self-organized and they are armed and they haven't had much a pro many problems with anti-Semitic violence because uh, the, I guess their opponents view the Italian Jews as tough Jews and they don't want to uh, get in fights with Italian Jewry. Britain has a similar organization where they provide security to the British community, um, the Community Service uh, Security Trust, I believe it's called Community Security Trust. Um, CST, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And that's a pri private initiative that works again with the British United Kingdom, the government agencies and the police to protect the community, but they're self-organized. And that's why they've also, uh, you don't see uh, the types of, uh, um, you know, tar targeting or, or attacks like you do in France and some other countries where they're not as, I think, self-organized or Germany. Th many of these countries like Germany have outsourced their security to the German government completely. They're not self-organized. They don't uh, recommend, as they should, in my view, that the Jews uh, in, are are self-armed. You know, I've you know I, I'm a strong proponent of Jews um, securing weapons legally to protect themselves in these countries um, because it's highly dangerous. Um, we've seen the attacks in Denmark and other countries. Where Jews have been killed. France, of course, is is, is sort of the hot spot, um, and uh, Bulgaria, as I mentioned, even though that was a, a tourism trip, but the, the community there is also in danger. Um, it, it's all over Europe. So the, the point I, I'm making is, I think if you outsource your security, um, you fail to internalize one of the important lessons of uh, Zionism, that is to not. Uh, engage in servility, not to um, capitulate to um, forces, political forces and governments that are sort of indifferent to your security and to stand up and flex your muscles. And, um, and I think too many of these communities have turned inward and they're running scared and they live in garrisons and they're not, um, they're running, they're afraid of their own shadows. Personally, if you ask me my opinion, what they should do, I would follow Evelyn's lead. And, and well, you went to the United States. They certainly are welcome to go to the United States if they want. I would prefer if they went to Israel. Uh, I think Aliyah is the best uh, um, remedy right now for what's happening in Europe because the future there uh, looks to be very bleak based on the trends that I'm seeing right, right now. Obviously, Europe can regenerate itself. And it can <clears throat> turn things around quickly. These advanced capitalist countries are have great resources, just as the United States has enormous resources to uh, turn the tide, so to speak. But I, I don't, I, I, I don't see much of a future for Jews uh, in Europe, just based on the demographics and the indifference of indifference of these European governments. But the Jewish communities need to really. Um, you know, struggle with these issues. In Germany, most of the Jewish population is elderly it's from the former Soviet Union. So there's, it's a very fragmented, fractured Jewish community that you can barely get minions at any of these, uh, any of their synagogues. But the Germans present it as a Jewish renaissance. 
You know, we have this you know robust, vibrant Jewish community. When I met with one of my mentors in in Berlin, when I lived there, the former head of the Jewish community, Alexander Brenner, so wonderful. A human being, sort of a father figure to me. Um, after my father passed away, um, he, you know, he he grew up in in Poland and then fled to the Soviet Union during the war and then ended up in Germany. He worked as a diplomat um, in the German uh, embassy in Russia. He knew a bunch of languages and also in Israel. And he he would always tell me uh, and and complain bitterly complain about this fake Jewish Renaissance in Germany, and it's all a big show. And um, but. Yeah. With with that, I will say this is we run over our usual time because this has been so interesting. So unless you have a, I think that you actually said the last thought really important, which is that Jewish communities have to step up for their own protection. In the United States, we do have private national organizations that work with security. I here in Los Angeles, I went to a uh, workshop on how to notice things around your synagogues, etc., and that I think. Uh, this is a very important point that you make, that European Jews have to take their own protection seriously. Uh, hopefully learning from World War II that you can't wait for the government to protect you. You need to protect it now. If, Evelyn, you don't have anything else to add, I think I'll end it now because we want people to listen to this amazing interview. So thank you very much, Benjamin. This has been very, very informative. Thank our listeners. I want to say to those who have not yet seen Evelyn's Documentary Never Again is Now, which demonstrates why she moved to the United States. Do see it on Amazon or YouTube. You can learn more about my play, thinedgeofthewedge.com, which is testimonies of survivors and saviors and encourages young people to speak up now, not wait till it's too late. And as we end every show, we say, without putting yourself in physical harm, please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.